We're going to be in 2 Corinthians this morning, and we're going to be all over in 2 Corinthians. And so I want to just encourage you early on here to, to grab a hold of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, use a pew Bible. It's page 964. I want you to see a number of these passages in their context this morning. And so I hope that you'll flip around with me in 2 Corinthians. We are walking through Paul's letters. We, we walked through Acts. We, we got a picture of Paul and his journeys. And so now we're trying to go back and see what, what, did he, what letters did he send, when did he send them, who did he send them to, and why did he send them. And so we're trying to walk through those letters. And we have come to the letters to, that he has sent to the church in Corinth. We looked for a couple of weeks at, at 1 Corinthians. And you can go back and listen to that. But now we come to 2 Corinthians today. If you remember, we're going chronologically, so the first book, the first letter, sorry, the first letter that Paul wrote was to the Galatian people. That was about the Gentile circumcision issue. Then he wrote to the church in Thessalonica. He wrote a couple of letters, First and Second Thessalonians, to the church in Thessalonica. And then, in the, in the beginning of his third missionary journey, he comes and he write, he's, he's in Ephesus, but he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And I'll walk through those letters here in just a second in, in, in the order of how he did that. But you remember the church in Corinth. That, that was in his second missionary journey. He came to Corinth. He, he, had, he had settled there. He met Priscilla and Aquila. He had a, a, a vision even from Jesus in Corinth and spent a year and a half. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth establishing that church. You can find that story back in Acts chapter 18 if you want to go back and look at how Corinth and the church in Corinth was established. But Paul spends 18 months there and he, he builds up this church. He knows the people. He knows the, the, the beginning founding members of the church in Corinth. He knows their faces. He knows their families. He knows what they came out of to come into the church. And so as he writes this letter, he knows, he knows the people that he's talking to. He knows the ones he's writing to. Corinth was a large cosmopolitan city, probably the New York City is the reference that we have used a couple of times. That's the New York City of that area. It was, it was large. It was a lot happening there. It was a cultural icon. Uh, it had, had lots and lots of wealth and banks. It was right on a major, tr couple of major trade routes. Uh, Corinth was a, was a, was a large city. And, and Paul Paul hears about some sexual immorality that's happening in the church in Corinth. And so he writes a letter. It's not, not 1 Corinthians, but he writes a letter that we no longer have. And he, specifically, he sends it to the church specifically about a, a specific man who has, has married and is sleeping with his stepmother. And so there's, there's this sexual immorality issue that he wants to deal with. And so he sends a letter to the church. And, and then he gets some visitors while he's in Ephesus. He gets some visitors from Corinth, um, specifically some members of Chloe's household, it says. Um, and, and he gets a report about the church, that this man is still a part of the church. The church is overlooking his sin. And, and in fact, they have some other questions about how they're to gather as a church and what ministry is to look like and what their body is to look like. And, and so Paul responds to those visitors, and he responds to those comments, the, the, the letter that they send to him and the report he gets from Chloe's household. He responds to that with a letter. That's 1 Corinthians. That's the letter that Paul sends back to the church in Corinth. 
And it's a church, it's a letter to the church that says, the gospel needs to be a part of everything. The gospel matters. And he says, you're to be set apart and you're to be, you're to be united together. And those were the passages that we looked at in 1 Corinthians. And so he sends that letter to the church in Corinth, hoping that they'll hear what he has to say, that the gospel will make an impact on everything in their life. He then goes on, and this is where we jump into 2 Corinthians, he then goes on to visit the church in Corinth. And we don't have a recording of that in Acts or in Corinthians, but we see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, if you're looking there in, in 2 Corinthians. Right in verse 1, it says, Paul says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So he's referring to this this visit, the, the commentary writers call this the, the painful visit, a difficult visit. In fact, it was so difficult, it was so painful for both Paul and for the church in Corinth that he rethinks whether he should even go back. I don't want to make another painful visit. I have all, the, and he even talks about that there in, in chapter 2. I'm not sure that I even want to go back. It was a painful visit. And so... Instead, he writes another letter. He sends a third letter now. He sends another letter to the church in Corinth. Again, we don't have this letter. He sends it with Titus. In fact, he talks about that there if you keep reading in chapter 2. If I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one who I I have pained? And as I wrote, he says, this is about that letter, as I wrote as I did, then I came to that I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt with all of you that my joy wouldn't be made joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. He wasn't sure he could go back and visit again in the way that their relationship was at in that point. So he sends a letter, he sends it with Titus. And then Paul leaves Ephesus and he begins to travel. If you remember that third missionary journey, he leaves Ephesus and he kind of goes north and he goes across into Macedonia. And, and, what he's doing, and what we saw in the book of Acts, is that he's, he's traveling that way. He wants to go visit Corinth again, but he's taking the long road to get there because he's nervous. He sent this letter off. He's nervous about how it's going to be received. And so he travels through Macedonia waiting for Titus to come. And, and we see that if you flip now a few pages, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, you see that, that he's waiting He's waiting for Titus to meet him on this journey through Macedonia so that he can come back to Corinth. It says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 6, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us with the coming of Titus. So Titus comes, meets him in Macedonia finally. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort by which he has comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. And even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul is saying, Titus has now met him on the road there in Macedonia. And it, and it takes a while, if you, if you read through there. He doesn't, he doesn't come as quickly as Paul was hoping. In fact, Paul worried even if Titus was still alive. And Titus finally comes, shows up, and gives a report. He says, I, I took this, this letter, which we don't have. I took this letter to the, to the church in Corinth. They were grieved by it. But now, 
Now they were grieved by it just for a little while. Now they've repented, and Titus brings this report to Paul that says, says they, they've read the letter, they've repented, that, that everything is changing in Corinth. And so now Paul hears that, and Paul now is going to come and visit Corinth, but before he gets there, he wants to send Titus on ahead with a letter. And so he writes what we have as 2 Corinthians, this letter to the church. He's coming to visit. In fact, he's going to show up uh, in Acts chapter 20. We find that he does show up in Corinth again and spends the winter, spends about three months in Corinth again. But before he gets there, he wants to send this report because he's heard a good report from Titus. He wants to send this letter on. And so this is the letter, 2 Corinthians, that we have. 2 Corinthians is, is probably, of all Paul's letters, this is probably the most personal letter. This is the one where he, he shares with us the most about his personal life and, and probably has the most personal things to share here in 2 Corinthians. He has a relationship with the church in Corinth, and he wants to get some things out to them. He wants them to see it. Specifically, much of 2 Corinthians, the first part of 2 Corinthians, and the last part of 2 Corinthians, for sure, are some points where Paul is finally trying to make, is, is, is trying to make a defense of himself. He's trying to defend his own credentials. He's trying to defend himself to the, to the church in Corinthians, in, in Corinth. The Corinthian church has, and, and we saw this in the first book too, they, uh, they are, are easily, the believers in the church in Corinth are easily enamored. They're easily swayed by other leaders that come into the church. And what has happened here during this, this 2 Corinthians portion of the letter, some people have come in. He calls them super apostles. You can look in, in chapter 11, verse 5. Paul says, Paul says there's these super apostles that have come in to the church. And, and they have come in and, and, and they, 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 look, they look excellent. They, they speak eloquently. They, they are super apostles. Paul says. In fact, one of the things that they have done is that they, they have brought with them certificates and letters about how great they are. And so they come into the church and they display these letters, they display these certificates, they say, here's all, here's all of the reasons why you should listen to us and why you should follow us, and, and they get a following. In 1 Corinthians, you remember that, they, they had the, one of the issues that Paul said to them was, there's a group of you that follow Apollos, there's a group of you that follow Paul, there's a group of you that follow Cephas, there's a group of you that say, I just follow Christ. The church already, already was, has, has dealt with this issue before, being swayed by other speakers that have come in and, and locking on to them. And so Paul comes in this very first part of the letter and he says, he says, he defends himself because these super apostles have come in and they're saying, you know, you, you should follow us and listen to us and not listen to what Paul has already instructed you on. And so Paul, Paul right away says to them, these men, these super apostles, they come with letters, they come with certificates, they come with honors. They come telling you that they're recommended. But he says in, in chapter three, go ahead and look there, chapter three, verse one. He says, um, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And then Paul says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. 
Paul says, those guys, they might have certificates that come from some kind of university somewhere, but my letter of recommendation is you. The gospel is written in your life, and it's my ministry that happened in Corinth. When, when the church started, when you were drawn out of the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son, I was there. I was with you. You are my letters of recommendations. You are my credentials, Paul says. Your life is what I point to, to say, look at the ministry that's happening here. Paul goes on in in chapter 6. He's talking about the obstacles that stand in the way of of that communication. And he says in chapter 6, starting in verse 3, he says, he says, we don't want any obstacle to be in anyone's way. Chapter 6, verse 3. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Then he goes on to talk about the things that he endured. By great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand or for the left, through honor, dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet always making, uh, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. He says, our ministry to you, what you have seen in us, what we have endured as we have, have ministered to you, that's our seal. That's our sign. That's our letter of recommendation. We have suffered, we have endured so that we might minister to you, so that we might proclaim the gospel to you. The super apostles, the super apostles, they claim to have a a higher authority. And Paul, Paul wants to dispute their credentials. Remember I said this happens both in the front and the back of the book, so turn to chapter 11 because at the back of the book is where he becomes pretty harsh with the super apostles. He begins to dispute their credentials in chapter 11. We're going to jump to to verse 21 as he talks about what they boast in and what he boasts in. Verse 21 of chapter 11, he says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, he says, I also dare to boast in that. Are they Hebrews? Talking about the super apostles. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman here with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure." And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of the anxiety for all the churches. 
Who is weak? And am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And am I not indignant? If I must boast, he says in verse 30, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Paul says, look at all of these things. Look at all of these things that I have gone through. Look at all of these things that I have suffered. Look at all of these things that I have endured in my ministry to you and to the other churches. The thing that weighs on me most, he says, is my thoughts, my anxiety for all of these churches, including the Corinthian church. And he says, you don't hear me boasting in any of those things. I don't boast in any of that. I only boast in the things that show my weakness. You see, the super apostles, they had come into the church in Corinth, and they knew, they knew about all of these things that Paul had endured. They know about all of these things that Paul had suffered. And what they're saying to the Corinthian church as they come in is, is they're telling the Corinthian church, we can tell, we know that Paul is not, is not the leader that, that you think he is because he has suffered all of these things. The very thing that Paul points to, the very thing that Paul points to as his claim, they're saying that's what proves his insufficiency. They're saying, if he was really a true follower of Jesus, if he really was the, the, the apostle that was our equal, if he was really the trainer of churches that he says he is, he wouldn't have had it so tough. It wouldn't have been so hard for him. God would have blessed him much more than what he was blessed if he really was that great. You don't want to listen to Paul. You want to listen to us. And Paul's response, Paul's response as he lists all of those things that we just read, he continues on in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, verse 7. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that you should that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The super apostles came to the church in Corinth and said, these hardships, all of these things that Paul endured, that's what proves he's not all that great, that he's not God's messenger. And Paul comes back and says, my suffering, my weaknesses, those are the very things that prove my hope in Christ. I don't want to be conceited. So much so that Jesus has actually, God has actually given me this thorn in my side so that I might be weak, so that he can show his strength in me. Paul's saying, my hope, my strength, my power, all of those things come through my 
weakness so that the grace of Jesus, the grace of God might be seen in me. Paul does not want, Paul does not want the Corinthian church to run from affliction or to run from suffering. In fact, he wants them to find hope in it. Go all the way back to chapter one, at the very beginning. Paul talks about it there when he talks about the afflictions that have been put on him back in chapter one. Look at verse three. He says, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, through, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that, you, that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experience in Asia. For we are so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Paul wants the believers in the Corinth to see that suffering and affliction are a part of our life, especially on this side of eternity. Only, I guess, on this side of eternity. Suffering and affliction are part of our lives. In fact, later in this next letter that we look at in Romans, as we come back in a couple of weeks, this letter to the Romans says that, that suffering produces character and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint. Suffering and affliction are a part of our lives. God uses hardship and suffering and affliction. He uses those things to drive us to the Savior. He tells us that in chapter 4. Look there, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. We're always carrying in the body of death of Jesus so that in the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh so that death is at work in us, but life in you. Verse 13, since we, have sim- since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that the grace extends to more and more people, that it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So in verse 16, do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, don't lose heart. 
Don't lose heart because we look to what we can't see rather than what we can see. What we see, the hardship, the pain, the affliction, the suffering that we see is not ultimately what God is doing in us. So do not lose heart. You may be crushed, but you, you may be afflicted, but you will not be crushed. You may be perplexed, but you will not be driven to despair. You may be persecuted, but you will not be forsaken. God uses hardship and suffering and affliction to drive us to the Savior. Even today, though, we're still easily swayed by smooth talk. We're still easily swayed by what we can see. There's a movement, it's, it's large spread in the church called, many call it the prosperity gospel. It's very similar to what these super apostles shared with the Corinth church. That following Jesus, they say, doesn't lead to difficulty, but instead it leads us to untold blessings. That if you have more faith, you'll have less trouble. And if you have less faith, you'll have more trouble. It wasn't just the church in Corinth that swayed by that smooth talk. We like to hear it too. Because we don't like to talk about affliction and suffering and persecution and hardships. But Paul says we're afflicted in every way. Because we look to what is unseen rather than what is seen. That we walk by faith, not by sight, he says in chapter 5. Our hope is not in the blessings, in the blessings that we see. But he says our hope is in the surpassing work of God that is at work inside of us. Not what we see, but what we don't see. So walk by faith. Don't walk by sight. We do that because our eyes are easily blinded. In fact, he talks about that in chapter 4. If you look back at chapter 4, verse 3, it's where he kind of begins to mention that. It says, even if our gospel is veiled in chapter 4, verse 3, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He says, we proclaim not ourselves, but we proclaim Jesus. Look to Jesus. Our hope is found in Jesus. We are servants for Jesus' sake. Paul tells us often, Paul tells us often that the example of Jesus is not one of greatness, of boasting, and of pride. That's not the example that Jesus set for us. But instead, Jesus became nothing. Jesus came to earth and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that you and I might have hope, so that you and I might be saved. He tells it to us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, 
in verse, chapter 8, verse 9, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus, Jesus left his position in heaven with God, left his position of honor and wealth, and made himself poor to die the death of a criminal slave so that we who are lost and impoverished in sin might become rich through God's grace in hope of salvation. In fact, that's the last passage I want you to look at is in chapter five. That's what Paul shares in chapter five. It's what I think in all of scripture is one of the best presentations of the gospel. One of my most favorite passages, my most favorite verse in scripture comes here in chapter five, starting in verse 17. Six, starting in six, 16, we'll start in. 2 Corinthians five sixteen. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In verse 21, my favorite. For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's our hope. God made he who had no sin to become sin for me so that I might have the righteousness of God. That's why we come this morning to this table. Because God made he who had no sin to become sin for me. So we come and we remember it. So that we come and we rest nowhere else but only in Jesus. So we're going to do that together this morning. We're going to share in communion together this morning. The worship team is going to come and lead us. You have an invitation in your bulletin. It's on the screen as well. We practice open communion here at Richland. If you can live under that invitation, if you, as we said earlier this morning, have acknowledged Jesus as your only hope, if you know that God made he had no sin, become sin for you so that you might have the righteousness of God, we want you to share in communion together with us this morning. I hope that you will. The function of how we do that is our elders will come in just a few moments and, and uh, they will uh, invite you in your pew to come and to travel through. Up here at the front, there will be a couple of cups in the tray. We ask you to take both cups. The bottom cup holds the bread, the top cup 
holds the juice. We invite you to take those back then with you to your pew, and then we'll share in that communion together after everyone has been served. I'm grateful this morning that we have opportunity to remember and hope in the one who had no sin, who became sin for us, so that we might know the righteousness of God. Sing with us. And I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Cause Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Yeah. 
Cause Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow Cause Jesus paid it all All to Him I owe Sin had left a crimson stain represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. God made he who had no sin to become sin for me. Take and eat and be grateful. This represents the blood of Jesus which covers our sins so that we might have the righteousness of God. Take and drink. Stand with me this morning for our benediction. It comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 as Paul closes out his book. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.